are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at Manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Since leaving my job as a garment factory manager, I've been thinking about ways of elevating supplier voices in sustainability conversations. Not because one perspective matters more than others, but because I've often found it to be a perspective that's misunderstood and underrepresented, and that inhibits partnership. It's one of the reasons that together with Jesse, we started Manufactured Podcast. Every week, we showcase voices from deep within the fashion supply chain. But it has its limits. Many suppliers are afraid of coming on the show. They fear retribution. They are too used to being on the receiving end of a highly asymmetrical balance of power. Loose Threads is one of our attempts to create a safer space for these voices and for more open dialogue across the supply chain. Think of it as anonymized Q&A. Ask anonymously via our website, and we give our networks of suppliers a chance to anonymously respond. And then we share it with you in short 5-10 to ten minute mini-episodes. And while Loose Threads is one way of addressing this issue, it's not enough. We wanted to find a way to leverage our platform to offer more in-depth narratives as well. One of the ideas we came up with was to do indirect interviews. In other words, what if we had conversations with people otherwise too fearful of coming on the show and offer some kind of uh, summary instead? The idea of an indirect interview offers a solution to another big barrier too, language. Of course, we, we don't speak old languages people across the fashion supply chain speak, but surely we could find a way to least leverage the fact that I speak Chinese. Kim and I debated back and forth for a while. On, one, on the one hand, this format offers a solution to two things that often keeps people from coming on our show, language and fear. But on the other hand, it made us very nervous. We feared not getting it right, not doing our work guests justice. Even in our normal interview format, when our guests are present, I'm nervous about striking the right balance, how to create a platform that enables people to tell their own story rather than using it to tell people's stories on their behalf. And yet, whether or not our guest is physically present during the episode, we must also be open and honest about the fact that we are nonetheless mediators. Sustainability speak is its own kind of language, and achieving fluency in it requires practice and access to the conversation. Some of the guests we invite on our show, despite being at the heart of the sustainability agenda and engaging in it daily, lack fluency in the sustainability speak the industry has come to expect. Sometimes, though of course not always, an overt act of translation is needed to make sure the story will be understood by the person on the receiving end, to make sure it won't be discounted or dismissed. I've been reading Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong, in one essay, she shares a quote by the filmmaker Trin T. Min Ha, who suggests we speak nearby instead of speaking about. And I want to read part of that quote. 
When you decide to speak nearby rather than speak about, the first thing you need to do is acknowledge the possible gap between you and those who populate your film. In other words, to leave the space of representation open so that although you're very close to your subject, you're also committed to not speaking on their behalf, in their place, or on top of them. You can only speak nearby, in proximity, whether the other is physically present or absent, which requires that you deliberately suspend meaning, preventing it from merely closing and hence leaving a gap in the formation process. This allows the other person to come in and fill that space as they wish. By not trying to assume a position of authority in relation to the other, you are actually freeing yourself from the endless criteria generated with such an all-knowing claim and its hierarchies in knowledge. So after a lot of back and forth, Jesse and I tentatively concluded that the benefit of sharing more diverse stories outweighs the risk of misrepresentation. But we'll do our best to speak nearby instead of speaking about, and to clearly identify when we're sharing our own opinion and when we're sharing something that our guest has said. But please, call us out if we don't get the balance right. Okay, so our first indirect interview is based on a conversation between Jesse and Mr. Lin, who represents a part of the fashion supply chain that we almost never hear from, subcontractors. Before getting into his story, it's worth explaining briefly what subcontracting is and why it exists. The fact that the fashion industry often refers to subcontracting as an open secret frankly puzzles me. Sure, subcontracting is extremely prevalent, and the use of the term open secret speaks to this. But the reason it puzzles me is because the word secret somehow suggests it's a footnote, an appendage to the industry's identity, rather than a founding principle. Isn't a brand hiring a supplier to make goods on their behalf a form of subcontracting? Isn't subcontracting a precondition to the very notion of supply chains? Would supply chains even be a thing in the absence of subcontracting? And yet, colloquially, the term subcontracting is used exclusively to describe business arrangements between suppliers. For example, let's say a brand contracts Factory A to produce something on their behalf. Only when Factory A engages Factory B for all or part of the production work is it called subcontracting. Implicit in this language is an understanding of subcontracting as peripheral rather than constitutive. Yes, it's a prevalent practice, but it happens in a discrete, contained, and defined space. Why does this matter? Research has shown that people working in subcontracted facilities often fare worse than people working in larger, more visible garment factories. It's become a hot topic, especially in the wake of Rana Plaza, when many brands, because of subcontracting, claimed they didn't know their products were being made in a structurally unsafe building. So why do suppliers subcontract? I'd like to pivot to my time as a factory manager in Cambodia and my own decision to subcontract. It started relatively benignly. We had a seasonal order for ski masks, and we didn't have the lasering equipment that we needed to be able to make the breathing holes in the masks, and we didn't produce enough of this particular product to justify buying the machines ourselves. So we needed to subcontract to someone who did. Larger factories with nicer facilities weren't interested in taking on the job. The order was too small. The subcontractors who were willing to do it were smaller, and not exactly the kind of places my conscience felt good about supporting. But at the time, saying no to the order of ski masks would have meant laying off some of our own staff. So when the choice was between subcontracting to a dubious partner or being unable to pay our staff on time, we chose our staff. 
The irony, of course, was that upon touring the factory we selected, most of the products I saw on their production floor were for huge, well-known American brands with big, fat sustainability campaigns. But I digress. Another option, of course, would have been to rent the machines and to hire operators on a short-term contract. But this was costly. In Cambodia, like in many other countries, short-term contract workers are entitled to a severance pay equivalent to 5% of the total wages paid to the employee during the length of the contract. When you couple this with recruitment costs, training costs, and razor-thin margins, it can be unviable. Never mind that I would have had very few ways of knowing whether the machines had been properly maintained and doubted whether I had the right expertise within my own staff to ensure that we would know how to use them safely. Although on its surface this anecdote appears to be about a gap in technical requirements, it's underpinned by a much more fundamental truth. At the prices and lead times the industry expects, many suppliers depend on subcontracting to stay in business. To put it differently, the lives of workers in better regulated facilities depend on the existence and persistence of more precarious livelihoods elsewhere in the supply chain. There's a really interesting research paper that's just come out, and we'll put a link in the show notes, that tries to understand what drives the use of unauthorized subcontracting. They analyzed more than 32,000 orders placed by an Asia-based supply chain manager who connected more than 220 supplier factories with more than 30 companies selling lesser-known mass-market apparel goods in North America. They found, and I quote, that more than one-third of the orders in their sample had been subcontracted without authorization and they identified a handful of factors that signal when suppliers are likely to allow that to happen. The best predictor, if one order was farmed out, the next one was almost one-third likelier to be subcontracted than if the previous order had been kept in-house. This supports the notion that suppliers turn to subcontractors when operating at or close to capacity, as orders overflow the ability to fill them results in them being sent outside. Subcontracting was more prevalent when the buyer was paying less than the factory's usual price. End quote. Fundamentally, the fashion industry, at least as it exists today, needs a workforce capable of cheaply expanding and contracting. When stronger supplier oversight and legislation at home made this difficult, brands moved their production overseas. When tougher oversight in the form of social compliance requirements make this more difficult for suppliers abroad, the problem is pushed down to subcontractors. Being small, being invisible, is what enables subcontractors to be flexible and cheap. Subcontracting, precisely because it's off the radar, is the only way to meet the lead time and price requirements that the industry has come to expect. We'll come back to how this fits within the sustainability agenda towards the end of the episode, but for now, let's talk about Mr. Lin. So, Jesse, tell us about how you met Mr. Lin, how he ended up in Phnom Penh, and what kind of subcontracting he does. For a while, I wanted to interview Chinese garment suppliers, but in addition to some of the barriers we've already addressed, many of the Chinese suppliers I know don't see the value of their work. They said, who will be interested? There is nothing to say, just the uh, usual old stuff and so on. So one day I, I met a Chinese journalist. He lives in San Rep for a few years. I told him what I'm looking for, and he gave me three contacts of Chinese garment suppliers living and running business in Phnom Penh. Um, after hearing the ideas, two suppliers turned down the invitation. One agreed to have an interview, but preferred to do it only by voice instead of uh, 
face to face talking and recording. So that's how I met Mr. Lin and interviewed him over a phone call. He didn't tell me why he agreed to have interview, but I made、uh, a guess. So it's probably he's invisible for the end clients. End clients here means the brands who place orders to his customers. He's a subcontractor, and subcontractors are usually in the shadows. They are not on anyone's suppliers list. Telling a story like what we are doing now has very little chances to make him be recognized. In another word, I think he feels safer. The other reason I think is we didn't plan to use his story to go against anyone or point at anyone. The purpose is to bring more voices to the stage. The purpose of this interview makes Mr. Lin feel interested. He is willing to let more people to have an idea of subcontractors in garment business. And the last reason, somehow during the interview, I sensed that Mr. Lin see his business in a very different way from brands and sustainability advocates. For instance, he thinks he's helping bigger factories. What I mean is, he see himself as helping bigger factories. That his business is necessary existence for the whole supply network. He didn't say it clearly, but from the way he talks about it. I sensed that he thinks his business is helping brands to get cheaper products and helping brand suppliers to cope with the demand without losing too much margin. So talk about Mr. Lin. He's a mainland Chinese, around thirty-five years old. He came to live in Phnom Penh nearly ten years ago at the invitation of his relative, who who was doing garment business. I asked Mr. Lin what made him decide to move to Phnom Penh. He said he was doing a small business in the south of China at that time. The cost and the life expenses in China increased a lot comparing with before. Though his business was profitable, he didn't manage to have much money left. And his relative told him Phnom Penh is much cheaper than China in terms of expenses. His margin would be much bigger if he ran business in Phnom Penh. That's how he moved to Phnom Penh and start his garment factory. His work in China was not related to garment at all, right? No, it's not.、Uh, it's not about garment. It's something else. But he didn't tell me the details. So he just started the garment factory when he moved to Phnom Penh. I think because of his relative is already in the garment business. So Mr. Lin's factory is making knitting wear, mostly sweaters for men and women. His clients are mostly bigger factories. Some are in China, some are in Phnom Penh. When those bigger factories receive orders from their clients, sometimes they will outsource the production to Mr. Lin. In this case, the big factory will buy and send raw materials to Mr. Lin. Mr. Lin's factory takes care of the production from knitting to packing. The goods will be packed in a ready-to-sell status and sent to the bigger factories. Then to be exported and shipped under the name of those big factories, the end clients are usually come from Europe and USA. Mister Lin's factory has three production lines. When it is fully booked, he has over one hundred people working in the factory. His production manager is a Cambodian Vietnamese. It surprised me that、uh, the manager is not a Chinese, which is often the case in a Chinese-owned garment factory. The reason he told me is the language. He needs someone who can speak Khmer on this position. He speaks only a little Khmer. He agreed with me that it is often the case that Chinese-owned garment factories have a Chinese factory management. 
But he also pointed out, for instance, some Taiwanese, Singaporean, or Malaysian Chinese garment factories often have Filipino factory managers. The reason for him is the language again. Filipino speaks fluent English that helps the communication with their English-speaking clients. You talked to Mr. Lin back in August, and you spent quite a bit of time talking to him about COVID. Can you share a little bit about what he said and how it's impacted his business? Before starting the interview, I was ready to hear some sad news about COVID nineteen, how it influenced Mr. Lin's business. After all, you know,、um, when brands canceled orders, the brand suppliers are the first one to receive the impact. But the pressure will eventually pass down to subcontractors like Mr. Lin. That was my assumption. And、uh, after the interview, I realized this is partly true, but not not the whole story.、Uh, Mr. Lin reacted very fast to the crisis. He quickly decreased his prices to secure the orders he received already, and he decreased his price a lot, also to pour in new customers, also struggling in the same desperate situations too. By the moment I interviewed him, Mr. Lee managed managed to have roughly the same amount of orders as last year, though his margin was decreased a lot. At least his production is running and his factory is still alive. Then I was very curious about why he didn't try to get some、uh, face mask orders. He told me he has no plan to switch his business to produce face masks. He concerns the demand is not steady. Another reason is the investment. He needs to input big amount of cash upfront into buying raw materials and purchasing new mer- new machines. If the demand doesn't last long, that he would have a high risk of getting no return on his investment. I think it's worth actually looking a little bit deeper at what might be protecting him from these order cancellations we've been hearing about, and why he's been able to reduce his prices. He, Mister Lin himself, mentioned one reason. He said, "Let's because he、um, he has much less investment on each order comparing with his customer, those big factories, for instance. He never need to buy materials upfront, and he if he doesn't need to buy raw materials, he also saved um, um, he also saved investment or he saved、uh, to hire a team to do sourcing." And to do product development, so it's a knitting wear. So he just needed to start from the production, exact production. I asked him usually how the process go. He told me his customer needs to send him the raw materials and send him an already approved sample, or send him a piece directly from production line. And then when he received the raw materials and the approved sample, he just needed to start production right away. So for him, his light investment is a very strong reason to protect him. That's what he mentioned. He saved lots of process. He saved、uh, sourcing materials. He saved、uh, materials investment. He saved the team of product development. He saved the time and、uh, and money or input for the communication between between brands and、uh, himself. So he saved、uh, actually a lot of the the cost. Um, so this is the point he mentioned, and I made another two assumptions. I think the product itself also protect him. His product is a、uh, knitting wear; it's a sweater. There's no cutting. 
you just need a yarn and it's a machine knitting. So it has sewing, but the sewing is uh, much simpler and finishing and inspection are rather simple too. The whole production relies less on very skilled sewers, but more on knitting machine operation. And that gives more spaces to his employment, I assume. So he could uh, have more or less workers, depends on the orders he received. And although he certainly didn't say this, I think my point of view is that implicit within all of this story, too, is that he's not subject to the legal regulations that make a flexible labor force more expensive. And another reason I think uh, protect him is, uh, it's quite funny, I think it's a pandemic. The pandemic makes the whole government supply network more on buyer's market than, than before. You have the same amount of suppliers competing for much less orders. In this case, a lower price is an overwhelming factor when some brands place orders. And sometimes brand suppliers might also lower prices to secure their positions too. So no matter how, it just makes subcontractors needed more than ever in this over-competitive situation. One of the things we hear regularly in conversations these days is that COVID-19, one of the impacts of COVID-19 is going to be consolidation in the supply chain. And I want to read this quote by um, that I read in a McKinsey report that was published in May 2020, and it was called Time for Change, How to Use the Crisis to Make Fashion Sourcing More Agile and Sustainable. And the quote goes like this, fashion retailers and brands can't achieve flexibility, agility, and sustainability alone. Advanced suppliers are partners in collaborative design, driving process innovation, and technical and product research and development. Almost three quarters of the broader group of sourcing journal readers expects an acceleration of fashion retailers and brands forging partnerships with these suppliers. And 60% of respondents believe that the supplier base will consolidate, meaning the number of suppliers will be reduced over the coming year as fashion companies move to larger, more advanced suppliers with an international footprint. And that's the end of the quote. And I think that's interesting because maybe... And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm speculating, but maybe at one level you will have consolidation, you will have moved, moves towards more vertically integrated supply chains. But as long as there continues to be, uh, let's say, unstable demand, you know, that sometimes we need more products and sometimes we need fewer. And as long as there's so no, no sort of adjustment on the price and the distribution of risk and reward across the supply chain, I don't think this demand for cheaply flexible labor is going to go anywhere. And and that, like you said, the need for subcontracting is maybe stronger than ever before. So maybe we'll see consolidation at the level of like the number of suppliers there are that are directly hired by brands, but maybe the number of subcontractors will actually just um, proliferate. I don't know, speculating. But I guess suppliers on the medium level might have difficult time. So with this context in mind, Jesse, um, where does Mr. Lin see his business going in the future? When looking into the future, Mr. Lin has no plan to grow his business bigger from being a subcontractor uh, to become a supplier for brands. And I was very surprised, as I, I always assume subcontractors want to become visible. Subcontractors want to become brand suppliers. As I assume... Um, if you if you are if you are on the list of if you are on a supplier list of a brand, then your payment is more secured. 
uh, everything is more secured. Where when you are invisible, your payment or the payment terms or the amount of money you can get or the the contract details are not secured. So that was my assumption. But Mr. Ming Lin told me it's not true. He sees the whole thing very practically. He said, to supply brands, I needed to buy more machines, renting a bigger space, and hire more people with regular contract to put up with the requirements and the demands from brands. If the orders are not regular in terms of quantity and style, I'm hooked. I'm not flexible anymore. Today, I'm very flexible. I can deal with bigger orders. I can also cope with smaller orders. Factories always need subcontractors, and my business would always running as long as my prices are cheap for the bigger factories. However, like many other Chinese business owners I know, Mr. Lin is also considering to develop another business to balance or compensate the financial risks from uh, government production. You would never imagine what he plans to do. He plans to do beekeeping and to produce honey. Uh, besides his uh, personal interest into bees, he believes honey business has a faster circulation of cash comparing with making garment. And that makes me worried. If subcontractors feel tension on their cash flow, I can only assume the suppliers of brands are at the edge. In fact, it brought me back to the time when I was a merchandising manager working for brands in China. Quite a few garment suppliers told me they only made a few cents per piece from the, from our orders. They hung on the hope of VAT refund from the government and the hope that we might place a bigger quantity to them if they remain cooperative. In another private conversation, one supplier told me they have to outsource the production to a subcontractor, otherwise they can't make enough to run the business. From this point, you can see subcontractors will always stay. They are needed in terms to keep the game running. Who is the last one to pay the cost and who is accountable for that? Right. And I think that's an important question. And it brings us back to what we promised we would get into at the very beginning of this episode, and that's the relationship between sustainability and subcontracting. So... Conventional logic about how to better protect the rights of workers in subcontracted factories, because ultimately, that's what all of this is about, usually goes like this. Better oversight and regulation leads to better human rights outcomes, hence the differentiation between authorized and unauthorized subcontracting. Authorized subcontracting is subcontracting that is disclosed and known to the brand. Unauthorized subcontracting is not known to the brands. Because unauthorized subcontractors are invisible to the brands, they are unaccountable. It is the absence of oversight that increases the chances of exploitation. The antidote, therefore, is visibility. As long as suppliers are transparent about to whom they are subcontracting, systems of oversight can be put in place. Auditors can verify whether the supplier on record is doing the requisite due diligence on its subcontractors. Human rights outcomes will be better. The goal seems to be putting an end to unauthorized subcontracting. But the distinction between authorized and unauthorized subcontracting only makes sense if we implicitly assume that the reasons suppliers subcontract is because they're out to make a quick buck, opportunistic, and keen to take advantage of weak regulation. In other words, it's a choice driven by a factory manager's values, 
oversight and regulation are needed to weed out, quote-unquote, bad apples. Within this narrative, a supplier's failure to disclose their decision to subcontract can mean only one thing, an attempt to hide malicious intent. And this is especially interesting because it's really very much in contrast to how, Jesse, how you describe Mr. Lin as perceiving his own role in this situation, which is that he, he sees himself as, as, as helping bigger factories and helping them to cope with this volatile demand and the perpetual need on the part of brands for lower prices in a way that allows them to remain in business. And if we shift our understanding of subcontracting to something systemic, something integral to the way the industry does business, it becomes obvious that using oversight to put an end to subcontracting, whether authorized or unauthorized, is impossible. It would be like telling a barista to make a cappuccino without coffee beans, installing a video camera to verify the instructions are followed, but still expecting a result that looks, feels, and tastes like a cappuccino. Making a subcontractor visible and subjecting them to more stringent oversight requirements would strip them of the low-cost flexibility that is their whole reason for being. Meanwhile, the added oversight will have done nothing to address why the fashion industry needs such a cheap and flexible workforce in the first place. Prices are too low and the distribution of risk and reward too unequal. If we want to do something about human rights abuses in subcontracted facilities, we need to talk about lead time and price. Lead time matters because it's a prerequisite to being able to smooth out production in the face of fluctuating demand. For example, if a factory has to produce 100,000 pieces in one month and 200,000 pieces in another month, the factory could balance out demand by producing an even 150,000 pieces each month, meaning fluctuations in staffing requirements are less extreme. But smoothing out production is impossible if the time between when the order is placed and when it must be delivered is just a couple of weeks. Price matters because having enough cash in the bank for the inevitable rainy day is a prerequisite to being able to take on risk without compromising people's livelihoods. Consulting is a useful analogy. Most consultants charge a higher rate per hour than they would earn if they had standard full-time jobs because they are assuming the risk of uncertainty. In other words, they need to charge more per hour to cover the periods during which they don't have work. Similarly, if suppliers were paid a higher rate per product, it would give them enough cushion to be able to keep a larger workforce employed during slow seasons. Like rent and other overhead, labor is an expense that can't easily be adjusted to match the demand of a given moment. For heavily regulated factories, permanent contracts and reasonable job security render labor a relatively fixed cost. Sustaining a higher level of fixed costs requires higher prices. But terms around pricing and lead time are usually dictated by brands. Suppliers must take what they can get. We're on the receiving end of a highly asymmetrical balance of power and limited in our ability to negotiate. If the sweeping order cancellations in the face of global pandemic aren't testament to this, I don't know what is. Jesse and I saw our former employer lose orders over just half a cent for a part of a product that often retails for over $200. So where does this leave the sustainable fashion agenda? For starters, let's drop the distinction between authorized and unauthorized subcontracting and call it what it is, a practice that exists because the way we do fashion systematically requires precarious and vulnerable livelihoods. To put the emphasis on whether it's authorized serves only to obscure our own implication and to assuage the conscience. 
Second, transparency shouldn't be about better oversight and control. It should be about radically disrupting a highly asymmetrical balance of power. Imagine if we harness the power of transparency to talk about pricing and purchasing practices, to talk about the forces that drive the need for subcontracting in the first place. Then, as my Minnesotan grandma likes to say, we'd be cooking with gas. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.